Chapter Twelve of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Massacre. Manda had hardly been slain before the commune nominated Santerre as commanding general in his stead, and he ordered the drums to beat in all the town and the bells to be rung harder than ever in all the steeples. He sent out patrols to scour the ways and particularly to scout around the assembly. Some twenty prowlers were made prisoners, of whom half escaped before morning, leaving eleven in the Foyance guardhouse. In their midst was a dandified young gentleman in the National Guard uniform, the newness of which, the superiority of his weapons, and the elegance of his style made them suspect he was an aristocrat. He was quite calm. He said that he went to the palace on an order, which he showed the examining committee of the Foyance ward. It ran, The National Guard, bearer of this paper, will go to the palace to learn what the state of affairs is, and return to report to the attorney and syndicate general of the department, signed, Roy, La Rue, Municipal Officers. The order was plain enough, but it was thought that the signatures were forged, and it was sent to the city hall by a messenger to have them verified. This last arrest had brought a large crowd around the place, and some such voices as are always to be heard at popular gatherings yelled for the prisoner's death. An official saw that this desire must not spread, and was making a speech to which the mob was yielding, when the messenger came back from the hall to say the order was genuine, and they ought to set at liberty the prisoner named Sulot. At this name, a woman in the mob raised her head and uttered a scream of rage. Sulot, she cried. Sulot, the editor of the Acts of the Apostles newspaper, one of the slayers of liege independence. Let me at this Sulot. I call for the death of Sulot. The crowd parted to let this little wiry woman go through. She wore a riding habit of the national colors, and was carrying a sword in a cross-belt. She went up to the city official and forced him to give her the place on the stand. Her head was barely above the concourse before they all roared, "'Bravo! Teroyne!' Indeed, Teroyne was a most popular woman, so that Sulot had made a hit when he said she was the bride of citizen populace, as well as referring to her free and easy morals. Besides, he had published at Brussels the Alarm for Kings, and thus helped the Belgian outbreak, and to replace under the Austrian cane and the priestly mitre a noble people wishing to be free and join France. At this very epoch, Tironi was writing her memoirs and had read the part about her arrest there to the Jacobin Club, she claimed the death of the ten other prisoners along with Sulot. Through the door he heard her ringing voice amid applause. He called the captain of the guard to him and asked to be turned loose to the mob, that by his sacrifice he might save his fellow prisoners. They did not believe he meant it. They refused to open the door to him, and he tried to jump out of the window, but they pulled him back. They did not think that they would be handed over to the slaughterers in cold blood. They were mistaken. Intimidated by the yells, Chairman Bonjour yielded to Tyroyne's demand and bid the National Guardsmen stand aloof from resisting the popular will. They stepped aside, 
and the door was left free. The mob burst into the jail and grabbed the first prisoner to hand. It was a priest, Vaugnon, a playwright noted for his failures and his epigrams. He was a large-built man and fought desperately with the butchers who tore him from the arms of the commissioner who tried to save him. Though he had no weapon but his naked fists, he laid out two or three of the ruffians. A bayonet pinned him to the wall so that he expired without being able to hit with his last blows. Two of the prisoners managed to escape in the scuffle. The next to the priest was an old royal guardsman, whose defense was not less vigorous. His death was but the more cruel. A third was cut to pieces before Soulot's turn came. "'This is your Soulot,' said a woman to Teroigny. She did not know him by sight. She thought he was a priest, and scoffed at him as the Abbe Soulot. Like a wildcat, she sprung at his throat. He was young, brave, and lusty. With a fist-blow, he sent her ten paces off, shook off the men who had seized him, and wrenching a saber from a hand, felled a couple of the assassins. Then commenced a horrible conflict— Gaining ground toward the door, Sulot cut himself three times free, but he was obliged to turn round to get the cursed door open, and in that instant twenty blades ran through his body. He fell at the feet of Teroigny, who had the cruel joy of inflicting his last wound. Another escaped, another stoutly resisted, but the rest were butchered like sheep. All the bodies were dragged to Vendôme Place, where their heads were struck off and set on poles for a march through the town. Thus, before the action, blood was spilled in two places, on the city hall steps and in Fouillant's yard. We shall presently see it flow in the Tuileries, the brook after the raindrops, the river after the brook. While this massacre was being perpetrated, about 9 a.m. some 11,000 National Guards, gathered by the alarm bell of Barbaru and the drum-beat of Santerre, marched down the Saint-Antoine ward and came out on the strand. They wanted the order to assail the Tuileries. Made to wait for an hour, two stories beguiled them. Either concessions were hoped from the court, or the Saint-Marceau ward was not ready and they could not fall on without them. A thousand pikemen waxed restless. As ever, the worst armed wanted to begin the fray. They broke through the ranks of the guards, saying that they were going to do without them and take the palace. Some of the Marseille Federals and a few French guards, of the same regiments which had stormed the Bastille three years ago, took the lead and were acclaimed as chiefs. These were the vanguard of the insurrection. In the meanwhile, the aide who had seen Mandat murdered had raced back to Tuileries, but it was not till after the king and the queen had returned from the fiasco of a review that he announced the ghastly news. The sound of a disturbance mounted to the first floor and entered by the open windows. The city and the national guards and the artillerists, the patriots in short, had taunted the grenadiers with being the king's tools, saying that they were bought up by the court and as they were ignorant of their commander's murder by the mob, a grenadier shouted, "'It looks as though that shuffler Mandat had sent few aristocrats here.' 
Mandat's eldest son was in the guard's ranks. We know where the other boy was, uselessly trying to defend his father on the city hall steps. At this insult to his absent sire, the young man sprung out of the line with his sword flourished. Three or four gunners rushed to meet him. Weber, the queen's attendant, was among the St. Roch district grenadiers, dressed as a national guardsman. He flew to the young man's help. The clash of steel was heard as the quarrel spread between the two parties. Drawn to the window by the noise, the queen perceived her foster-brother, and she sent the king's valet to bring him to her. Weber came up and told what was happening, whereupon she acquainted him with the death of Manda. The uproar went on beneath the windows. "'The cannoneers are leaving their pieces,' said Weber, looking out. "'They have no spikes, but they have driven balls home without powder, so that they are rendered useless.' "'What do you think of all this?' "'I think your majesty had better consult Syndic Roederer, who seems the most honest man in the palace.' Roderer was brought before the queen in her private apartment as the clock struck nine. End of chapter 12. Recording by John Vanstan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 13 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Repulse. At this point, Captain Derlay of the Switzers went up to the king to get orders from him or the major-general. The latter perceived the good captain as he was looking for some usher to introduce him. "'What do you want, captain?' he inquired. "'You, my lord Charny, as you are the garrison commander, I want the final orders as the head of the insurrectionary column appears on the carousel.' "'You are not to let them force their way through.' the captain having decided to die in the midst of us. "'Rely on us, Major General,' briefly replied Captain Derlay, going back to his men with this order, which was their death sentence. As he said, the van of the rebels was in sight. It was the thousand pikemen, at the head of whom marched some twenty Marseille men and fifteen French guardsmen. In the ranks of the latter gleamed the bullion epaulets of a National Guard's captain. This young officer was Ange Pitou, who had been recommended by Belay and was charged with a mission of which we shall hear more. Behind these, at a quarter-mile distance, came a considerable body of National Guards and Federals, preceded by a twelve-gun battery. When the garrison commandant's order was transmitted to them, the Swiss fell silently into line, and resolutely stood, with cold and gloomy firmness. Less severely disciplined, the National Guards took up their post more disorderly and noisily, but with equal resolution. The nobles badly marshaled, and armed with striking weapons only, as swords or short-range pistols, and aware that the combat would be to the death saw the moment approach with feverish glee when they could grapple with their ancient adversary, the people, the eternal athlete always thrown but growing the stronger during eight centuries. While the besieged were taking places, knocking was heard at the royal courtyard gate, and many voices shouting, 
a flag of truce over the wall at this spot was seen a white handkerchief tied to the tip of a pike staff roderer was on his way to the king when he saw this at the gate and ordered it to be opened the janitor did so and then ran off as fast as he could roderer confronted the foremost of the revolutionists my friends said he you wanted the gate open to a flag of truce and not to an army who wants to hold the parley i am your man said pitou with his sweet voice and bland smile who are you captain ange pitou of the harriman federal volunteers roderer did not know who the harriman federals were but he judged it not worth the while to inquire when time was so precious what are you wanting i want way through for myself and my friends pitou's friends who were in rags brandished their pikes and looked with their savage eyes like dangerous enemies indeed what do you want to go through here for to go and surround the assembly we have twelve guns but shall not use ever one if you do as we wish what do you wish the dethronement of the king this is a grave question sir observed roderer very grave replied pitou with his customary politeness it calls for some debate that is only fair returned ange it is going on ten o'clock less the quarter said he if we do not have an answer by ten as it strikes we shall begin our striking too meanwhile i suppose you will let us shut the door pitou ordered his crowd back and the door was closed but through the momentarily open door the besiegers caught a glimpse of the formidable preparations made to receive them as soon as the door was closed pitou's followers had a keen desire to keep on parleying some were hoisted upon their comrades shoulders so that they could bestride the wall where they began to chat with the national guardsmen inside they shook hands with them and they were merry together as the quarter of an hour passed then a man came from the palace with the word that they were to be let in the invaders believed that they had their request granted and they flocked in as soon as the doors were open like men who had been kept waiting all in a heap they stuck their caps on their pikes and whooped hurrah for the nation long live the national guard the swiss forever the national guard echoed the shout of the nation but the swiss kept a gloomy and sinister muteness the inrush only ceased when the intruders were up to the cannon muzzles where they stopped to look around the main vestibule was crammed with swiss three deep on each step was a rank so that six could fire at once some of the invaders including pitou began to consider although it was rather late to reflect but though seeing the danger the mob did not think of running away it tried to turn it by jesting with the soldiers the guards took the joking as it was made but the swiss looked glum for something had happened five minutes before the insurrectionary column marched up 
in the quarrel between the guards and the grenadiers over the insult to Mandat. The former had parted from the royalist guards, and as they went off they said good-bye to the Swiss, whom they wanted to go away with them. They said that they would receive in their own homes as brothers any of the Swiss who would come with them. Two from the Waldenses, that is, French Swiss, replied to the appeal made in their own tongue and took the French by the hand. At the same instant two shots were fired up at the palace windows, and bullets struck the deserters in the very arms of those who decoyed them away. Excellent marksmen as chamois hunters, the Swiss officers had nipped the mutiny thus in the bud. It is plain now why the other Swiss were mute. The men who had rushed into the yard were such as always oddly run before all outbreaks. They were armed with new pikes and old firearms, that is, worse than unarmed. The cannoneers had come over to their side, as well as the National Guards, and they wanted to induce the Switzers to do the same. They did not notice that time was passing, and that the quarter of an hour Petou had given Roederer had doubled. It was now a quarter past ten. They were having a good time. Why should they worry? One tattered Emaillon had not a sword or a pike but a pruning hook, and he said to his next neighbor, Suppose I were to fish for a Swiss? Good idea. Try your luck, said the other. So he hooked a Swiss by the belt and drew him toward him, the soldier resisting just enough to make out that he was dragged. I have got a bite, said the fisher for men. Then haul him in, but go gently, said his mate. The man with the hook drew softly indeed and the guardsman was drawn out of the entrance into the yard like a fish from the pond onto the bank. Up rose loud whoops and roars of laughter. "'Try for another,' said the crowd. The fisherman hooked another and jerked him out like the first. And so it went on to the fourth, and the fifth, and the whole regiment might have melted away but for the order, "'Make ready! Take aim!' On seeing the muskets leveled with the regular sound and precise movement marking evolutions of regular troops, one of the assailants, there is always some crazy head to give the signal for slaughter under such circumstances, fired a pistol at the palace windows. During the short space separating make ready and fire in the command, Petou guessed what was going to happen. "'Flat on your faces!' he shouted to his men. "'Down flat, or you are all dead men!' Suiting the action to the word, he flung himself on the ground. Before there was time for his advice to be generally followed, the word, "'Fire!' rang in the entranceway, which was filled with a crashing noise and smoke, while a hail of lead was spit forth as from one huge blunderbuss. The compact mass— for perhaps half the column had entered the yard, swayed like the wheat-field before the gust, then, like the same cropped by the scythe, reeled and fell down. Hardly a third was left alive. These few fled, passing under the fire from two lines of guns and the barracks firing at close range. The musketeers would have killed each other but for the thick screen of fugitives between. This curtain was ripped in wide places. Four hundred men were stretched on the ground pavement, three hundred slain outright. 
the hundred more or less badly injured groaned and tried to rise but falling gave part of the field of corpses a movement like the ocean's swell frightful to behold but gradually all died out and apart from a few obstinate fellows who persisted in living all fell into immobility the fugitives scattered over the carousel square and flowed out on the waterside on one hand and on the street by the other yelling murder help we were drawn into a death-trap on the new bridge they fell in with the main body the bulk was commanded by two men on horseback closely attended by one on foot who seemed to have a share in the command help citizen santerra shouted the flyers recognizing in one of the riders the big brewer of saint antoine by his colossal stature for which his huge flemish horse was but a pedestal in keeping help they are slaughtering our brothers who are demanded the brewer general the swiss they shot us down while we were cheek by jowl with them a kissing em what do you think of this asked santerra of the second horseman faith me dink of dot military proverb which it say this soldier ought to march where he hear dot gun firing going on replied the other writer who was a small fair man with his hair cropped short speaking with a strong german accent suppose we go where the goons go off eh hi you had a young officer with you called out the leader on foot to one of the runaways i don't see anything of him he was the first to be dropped citizen representative and the more's the pity for he was a brave young chap yes he was a brave young man replied with a slight loss of color the man addressed as a member of the house and he shall be bravely avenged on you go citizen santerra i believe my dear belay said the brewer that in such a pinch we must call experience into play as well as courage as you like in consequence i propose to place the command in the hands of citizen westerman a real general and a friend of danton offering to obey him like a common soldier i don't care what you do if you will only march right straight ahead said the farmer do you accept the command citizen westerman asked santerra i do said the russian laconically in that case give your orders Farvats! shouted vesterman and the immense column only halted for a breathing spell resumed the rout as its pioneers entered at the same time the carousel by all gates eleven struck on the tuileries clocks End of chapter 13. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 14 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Last of the Charnies. When Roderer entered the Queen's apartments behind Weber, that lady was seated by the fireplace with her back to the door but she turned round on hearing it opened well sir 
she asked, without being very pointed in her inquiry. "'The honour has been done me of a call,' replied Roderer. "'Yes, sir, you are one of the principal magistrates of the town, and your presence here is a shield for royalty. I wish to ask you, therefore, whether we have most to hope or to fear.' "'Little to hope, madame, and everything to fear.' The mob is really marching upon the palace. The front of the column is in the carousel, parleying with the Swiss guards. Parleying? But I gave the Swiss the express order to meet brute force with force. Are they disobeying? Nay, madame. The Swiss will die at their posts. And... We at ours. The same as the Swiss are soldiers at the service of the kings, kings are the soldiers at the beck of royalty. Redderer held his peace. Have I the misfortune to entertain an opinion not agreeing with yours, sir? asked the queen. Madame, I have no opinion unless I am asked for it. I do ask for it, sir. Then I shall state with the frankness of a believer. My opinion is that the king is ruined if he stays in the Tuileries. But if we do not stay here, where shall we go? cried the queen, rising in high alarm. At present there is no longer but one place of shelter for the royal family responded the attorney syndic name it sir the national assembly what do you say sir demanded the queen snapping her eyes and questioning like one who had not understood he repeated what he had said do you believe sir that i would ask a favor of those fellows he was silent again if we must meet enemies, I like those better who attack us in the broad day and in front than those who wish to destroy us in the dark and from behind. Well, madame, it is for you to decide. Either go and meet the people, or beat a retreat into the assembly hall. Beat a retreat? Are we so deprived of defenders that— we must retreat before we have tried the exchange of shots. Perhaps you will take the report, before you come to a conclusion, of some competent authority who knows the forces you have to dispose of. Faber, bring me one of the principal officers, Maillardet, or Chesney, or— She stopped on the point of saying the Count of Charny. Weber went out. "'If your majesty were to step up to the window, you would be able to judge for yourself.' With visible repugnance, the lady took the few steps to the window, and parting the curtains saw the carousel square, and the royal yard as well, crowded with ragged men bearing pikes. "'Good God! What are those fellows doing in here?' she exclaimed. 
I told your majesty, they are parleying. But they have entered the inner yards? I thought I had better gain the time somehow for your majesty to come to a resolution. The door opened. Come, come, cried the queen, without knowing that it would be Charny who appeared. I am here, madame, he said. Oh, is it you? Then I have nothing to say, as you told me a while ago what you thought should be done. Then the gentleman thought that the only course was, said Roderer, to die, returned the queen. You see that what I propose is preferable, madame. Oh, on my soul, I do not know whether it is or not, groaned the queen. What does the gentleman suggest? To take the king under the wing of the house. That is not death, but shame, said Charny. You hear that, sir? cried the lady. Come, come, said the lawyer. May there not be some middle course? Weber stepped forward. I am of very little account, he said, and I know that it is very bold of me to speak in such company. But my devotion may inspire me. Suppose that your majesty only requested a deputation to watch over the safety of the king. Well, I will consent to that, Lord Charny. If you approve of this suggestion, will you pray submit it to the king? Charny bowed and went out. Follow the count, Weber, and bring me the king's answer. Weber went out after the nobleman. Charny's presence, cold, stern, and devoted, was so cruel a reproach to her as a woman, if not as a sovereign, that she shuddered in it. Perhaps she had some terrible forewarning of what was to happen. Weber came back to say that the king accepted the idea. Two gentlemen are going to take his majesty's request to the assembly. But look what they are doing, exclaimed the queen. The besiegers were busy fishing for Switzers. Roderer looked out, but he had not the time to see what was in progress before a pistol-shot was followed by the formidable discharge. The building shook as though smitten to its foundations. The queen screamed and fell back a step, but returned to the window drawn by curiosity. "'Oh, see, see!' she cried with flaring eyes. "'They fly! They are routed! Why did you say that we had no resource but in the assembly? Will your majesty be good enough to come with me? said the official. See, see, continued the queen. There go the Swiss, making a sortie and pursuing them. Oh, the carousel is swept free. Victory, victory. In pity for yourself, madame, follow me persisted Roderer. Returning to her senses, she went with the attorney syndic to the Louvre gallery, where he learned the king was and which suited his purpose. The queen had not an idea of it. The gallery was barricaded half down, 
and it was cut through at a third of the way where a temporary bridge was thrown across the gap the foot of a fugitive might send it down and so prevent the pursuers following into the tuileries the king was in a window recess with his captains and some courtiers and he held a spy-glass in his hand the queen had no need for it as she ran to the balcony the army of the insurrection was approaching long and dense covering the whole of the wide street along the riverside and extending as far as the eye could reach over the new bridge the southern districts effected a junction with the others all the church bells of the town were frenziedly swinging out the tocsin while the big bell of notre dame cathedral overawed all the metallic vibrations with its bronze boom a burning sun sparkled in myriad points from the steel of gun-barrels and lace-points like the rumblings of a storm cannon was heard rolling on the pavement what now madame said roderer some fifty persons had gathered round the king the queen cast a long look on the group to see how much devotion lingered then mute not knowing to whom to turn the poor creature took up her son and showed him to the officers of the court and army and national guard no longer the sovereign asking the throne for her heir but the mother suing for protection for her boy during this time the king was speaking in a low voice with the commune attorney or rather the latter was repeating what he had said to the queen two very distinct groups formed around the two sovereigns the king's was cold and grave and was composed of councillors who appeared of roderer's opinion the queen's was ardent numerous and enthusiastic young military men who waved their hats flourished their swords raised their hands to the dauphin kissed the hem of the queen's robe and swore to die for both of them marie antoinette found some hope in this enthusiasm the king's party melted into the queen's, and with his usual impassibility the monarch found himself the centre of the two co-mingled. His unconcern might be courage. The queen snatched a pair of pistols from Colonel Maillardet. "'Come, sire,' she cried, "'this is the time for you to show yourself and die in the midst of your friends.' This action had carried enthusiasm to its height and everybody waited for the king's reply with parted lips and breath held in suspense a young brave and handsome king who had sprung forward with blazing eye and quivering lip to rush with the pistols in hand into the thick of the fight might have recalled fortune to his crown they waited and they hoped taking the pistols from the queen's hands the king returned them to the owner. "'Monsieur Roderer,' he said, "'you were observing that I had better go over to the house?' "'Such is my advice,' answered the legal agent of the commune, bowing. "'Come away, gentlemen. There is nothing more to be done here,' said the king. Uttering a sigh, the queen took up her son in her arms and said to her ladies, "'Come, ladies, since it is the king's desire,' which was as much as to say to the others, 
expect nothing more from me in the corridor where she would have to pass through mademoiselle campan was waiting she whispered to her how i wish i dwelt in a tower by the sea the abandoned attendants looked at each other and seemed to say is this the monarch for whom we came here to die colonel chesnay understood this mute inquiry for he answered no gentlemen it was for royalty the wearer of the crown is mortal but the principal imperishable the queen's ladies were terrified they looked like so many marble statues standing in the corners and along the lobbies at last the king condescended to remember those he was casting off at the foot of the stairs he halted but what will befall all those i leave behind he inquired sire replied roderer it will be easy enough for them to follow you out as they are in plain dress they can slip out through the gardens alas said the queen seeing count charny waiting for her by the garden gate with his drawn sword i would i had heeded you when you advised me to flee the queen's life-guardsman did not respond but he went up to the king and said sire will you please exchange hats lest yours single out your majesty oh you are right on account of the white feather said louis thank you my lord and he took the count's hat instead of his own does the king run any risk in this crossing inquired the queen you see madame that if so i have done all i could to turn the danger aside from the threatened one is your majesty ready asked the swiss captain charged to escort the king across the gardens the king advanced between two rows of swiss keeping step with him till suddenly they heard loud shouting on the left the door near the flora restaurant had been burst through by the mob and they rushed in knowing that the king was going to the assembly the leader of the band carried a head on a pole as the ensign the swiss captain ordered a halt and called his men to get their guns ready my lord charny said the queen if you see me on the point of falling into those ruffians hands you will kill me will you not i cannot promise you that for i shall be dead before they touch you bless us said the king this is the head of our poor colonel Manda. i know it again the band of assassins did not dare to come too near but they overwhelmed the royal pair with insults five or six shots were fired and two swiss fell one dead do not fire said charny or not one of us will reach the house alive that is so observed the captain carry arms the soldiers shouldered their guns and all continued crossing diagonally the first heats of the year had yellowed the chestnut trees and dry leaves were strewing the earth the little prince found some sport in heaping them up with his foot and kicking them on his sister the leaves are falling early this year observed the king did not one of those men write that royalty will not outlast the fall of the leaf questioned the queen 
"'Yes, my lady,' replied Charny. "'What was the name of this cunning prophet?' "'Manuel.' A new obstacle rose in the path of the royal family. A numerous crowd of men and women who were waiting with menacing gestures and brandished weapons on the steps and the terrace, which had to be gone over to reach the riding-school. The danger was the worse from the Swiss being unable to keep in rank. The captain tried in vain to get through, and he showed so much rage that Roderer cried, "'Be careful, sir. You will lead to the king being killed.' They had to halt but a messenger was sent to the assembly to plead that the king wanted asylum. The house sent a deputation, at the sight of whom the mob's fury was redoubled. Nothing was to be heard but these shouts yelled with wrath. "'Down with Vito! Over with the Austrian! Dethronement or death!' Understanding that it was, in particular, their mother who was threatened, the two children huddled up to her. The little Dauphine asked, "'Lord Charny, why do these naughty people want to hurt my mamma?' A gigantic man, armed with a pike and roaring louder than the rest, "'Down with Vito! Death to the Austrian!' kept trying to stab the king and the queen. The Swiss escort had gradually been forced away, so that the royal family had by them only the six noblemen who had left the palace with them charny and the assembly deputation there were still some thirty paces to go in the thick crowd it was evident that the lives of the pair were aimed at and chiefly the queen's the struggle began at the staircase foot if you do not sheathe your sword said roderer i will answer for nothing without uttering a word charny put up his sword the party was lifted by the press as a skiff is tossed in a gale by the waves and drawn toward the assembly. The king was obliged to push away a ruffian who stuck his fist in his face. The little Dauphin, almost smothered, screamed and held out his hands for help. A man dashed forward and snatched him out of his mother's arms. "'My Lord Charny, my son!' she shrieked. "'In heaven's name, save my boy!' Charny took a couple of steps in chase of the fellow with the prince, but as soon as he unmasked the queen, two or three hands dragged her toward them, and one clutched the neckerchief on her bosom. She sent up a scream. Charny forgot Roderer's advice, and his sword disappeared its full length in the body of the wretch who had dared to lay hands on the queen. The gang howled with rage on seeing one of their numbers slain, and rushed all the more fiercely on the group. Highest of all the women yelled, "'Why don't you kill the Austrian? Give her to us, to have her throat slit! Death to her! Death!' Twenty naked arms were stretched out to seize her. Maddened by grief, thinking nothing of her own danger, she never ceased to cry, "'My son! Save my son!' They touched the portals of the assembly, but the mob doubled their efforts for fear their prey would escape. Charny was so closely pressed that he could only ply the handle of his sword. Among the clinched and menacing fists, he saw one holding a pistol and trying to get a shot at the queen. He dropped his sword, grasped the pistol by both hands, wrenched it from the holder, and discharged it into the body of the nearest assailant. 
the man fell as though blasted by lightning. Charney stooped in the gap to regain his rapier. At this moment the queen entered the assembly vestibule in the retinue of the king. Charney's sword was already in a hand that had struck her. He flew at the murderer, but at this the doors were slammed and on the step he dropped, at the same time felled by an iron bar on his head and a spear right through his heart. "'As fell my brothers,' he muttered, "'my poor Andrea.' The fate of the Charnies was accomplished with the last one, as in the case of Valence and Isidore. That of the queen for whom their lives were laid down was yet to be fulfilled. At this time, a dreadful discharge of great guns announced that the besiegers and the garrison were hard at work. End of chapter 14. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 15 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bloodstains For a space, the Swiss might believe that they had dealt with an army and wiped it off the earth. They had slain nearly four hundred men in the royal yard, and almost two hundred in the carousel. Seven guns were the spoils. As far as they could see, no foes were in sight. One small, isolated battery, planted on the terrace of a house facing the Swiss guardhouse, continued its fire without their being able to silence it. As they believed they had suppressed the insurrection, they were taking measures to finish with this battery at any cost, when they heard on the water-side the rolling of drums, and the much more awful rolling of artillery over the stones. This was the army which the king was watching through his spy-glass from the Louvre gallery. At the same time, the rumor spread that the king had quitted the palace and had taken refuge in the House of Representatives. It is hard to tell the effect produced by this news, even on the most firm adherents. The monarch, who had promised to die at his royal post, deserting it and passing over to the enemy or at least surrendering without striking a blow. Thereupon, the National Guards regarded themselves as released from their oath, and almost all withdrew. Several noblemen followed them, thinking it foolish to die for a cause which acknowledged itself lost. Alone the Swiss remained, somber and silent, the slaves of discipline. From the top of the floor terrace, and the Louvre gallery windows, could be seen coming those heroic working men whom no army had ever resisted, and who had in one day brought low the Bastille, though it had been taking root during four centuries. These assailants had their plan. Believing the king in his castle, they sought to encompass him so as to take him in it. The column on the left bank had orders to get in by the river gates, that coming down St. Honor Street, to break in the Fouillance gate, while the column on the right bank were to attack it in front, led by Vesterman, with Santerre and Belay under his orders. The last suddenly poured in by all the small entrances on the carousel, singing the It Shall Go On. 
the marseilles men were in the lead dragging in their midst two four-pounders loaded with grape-shot about two hundred swiss were ranged in order of battle on carousel square straight to them marched the insurgents as the swiss leveled their muskets they opened their ranks and fired the pieces the soldiers discharged their guns but they immediately fell back to the palace leaving some thirty dead and wounded on the pavement thereupon the rebels headed by the breton and marseilles federals rushed on the tuileries capturing the two yards the royal in the centre where there were so many dead and the princes near the river and the flora restaurant billet had wished to fight where Petou fell with a hope that he might be only wounded so that he might do him the good turn he owed for picking him up on the parade ground so he was one of the first to enter the centre court such was the reek of blood that one might believe one was in the shambles it rose from the heap of corpses visible as a smoke in some places this sight and stench exasperated the attackers who hurled themselves on the palace besides they could not have hung back had they wished for they were shoved ahead by the masses incessantly spouted forth by the narrow doors of the carousel but we hasten to say that though the front of the pile resembled a frame of fireworks in a display none had the idea of flight nevertheless once inside the central yard the insurgents like those in whose gore they slipped were caught between two fires that from the clock entrance and from the double row of barracks the first thing to do was stop the latter the marseillais threw themselves at the buildings like mad dogs on a brazier but they could not demolish a wall with hands they called for picks and crows billet asked for torpedoes vestermann knew that his lieutenant had the right idea and he had petards made at the risk of having these cannon cartridges fired in their hands the marseilles men carried them with the matches lighted and flung them into the apertures the woodwork was soon set aflame by these grenades and the defenders were obliged to take refuge under the stairs here the fighting went on with steel to steel and shot for shot suddenly billet felt hands from behind seize him and he wheeled round thinking he had an enemy to grapple with but he uttered a cry of delight it was pitou but he was pretty hard to identify for he was smothered in blood from head to foot but he was safe and sound and without a single wound when he saw the swiss muskets leveled he had called out for all to drop flat and he had set the example but his followers had not time to act like him like a monstrous scythe the fusillade had swept along at breast height and laid two-thirds of the human field another volley bending and breaking the remainder Petou was literally buried beneath the swath and bathed by the warm and nauseating stream despite the profoundly disagreeable feeling Petou resolved not to make any move while bathed in the blood of the bodies stifling him and to wait for a favorable time to show tokens of life he had to wait for over an hour and every minute seemed an hour but he judged he had the right cue when he heard his side's shouts of victory and billet's voice among the many calling him thereupon like the titan under the mountain he shook off the mound of carcasses covering him 
and ran to press Belay to his heart on recognizing him, without thinking that he might soil his clothes whichever way he took him. A Swiss volley, which sent a dozen men to the ground, recalled them to the gravity of the situation. Two thousand yards of buildings were burning on the sides of the central court. It was sultry weather, without the least breath. Like a dome of lead, the smoke of the fire and powder pressed on the combatants. The smoke filled up the palace entrances. Each window flamed, but the front was sheeted in smoke. No one could tell who delivered death or who received it. Pitou and Belay, with the Marseillaise at the fore, pushed through the vapor into the vestibule. Here they met a wall of bayonets. The Swiss. The Swiss commenced their retreat, a heroic one, leaving a rank of dead on each step and the battalion most slowly retiring. Forty-eight dead were counted that evening on those stairs. Suddenly, the cry rang through the rooms and corridors. Order of the king! The Swiss will cease firing! It was two in the afternoon. The following had happened in the house to lead to the order proclaimed in the Tuileries, one with the double advantage of lessening the assailant's exasperation and covering the vanquished with honor. As the doors were closing behind the queen, but still while she could catch a glimpse of the bars, bayonets, and pikes menacing Charny, she had screamed and held her hands out toward the opening. But dragged away by her companions, at the same time by her maternal instinct, she had to enter the assembly hall. There she had the great relief afforded her of seeing her son, seated on the speaker's desk. The man who had carried him there waved his red cap triumphantly over the boy's head and shouted gladly, "'I have saved the son of my master! Long live the Dauphin!' But a sudden revulsion of feeling made Marie Antoinette recur to Charny. "'Gentlemen,' she said, "'one of my bravest officers, most devoted of followers, has been left outside the door in danger of death. I beg succor for him.' Five or six members sprung away at the appeal. The king, the queen, and the rest of the royal family with their attendants proceeded to the seats intended for the cabinet officers, and took places there. The assembly received them standing not from etiquette, but the respect misfortune compelled. Before sitting down, the king raised his hand to intimate that he wished to speak. "'I came here to prevent a great crime,' he said in the silence. "'I thought I could not be in safety anywhere else.' "'Sire,' returned Vergniaud, who presided. "'You may rely on the firmness of the National Assembly. Its members are sworn to die in defending the people's rights and the constitutional authorities.' As the king was taking his seat, a frightful musketry discharge resounded at the doors. It was the National Guards firing intermingled with the insurgents from the Foyance Terrace on the Swiss officers and soldiers forming the royal escort. An officer of the National Guard, probably out of his senses, ran in in alarm and only stopped by the bar, cried, 
the swiss the swiss are coming they have forced past us for an instant the house believed that the swiss had overcome the outbreak and were coming to recover their master for at the time louis the sixteenth was much more the king to the swiss than to any others with one spontaneous movement the house rose all of a mind and the representatives spectators officials and guards raising their hands shouted come what may we vow to live and die free men in such an oath the royals could take no part so they remained seated as the shout passed like a whirlwind over their heads from three thousand mouths the error did not last long but it was sublime in another quarter of an hour the cry was the palace is overrun the insurgents are coming here to take the king thereupon the same men who had sworn to die free in their hatred of royalty rose with the same spontaneity to swear they would defend the king to the death the swiss captain derlay was summoned outside to lay down his arms i serve the king and not the house he said where is the royal order they brought him into the assembly by force he was black with powder and red with blood sire he said they want me to lay down arms is it the king's order yes said louis hand your weapons to the national guard i do not want such brave men to perish derlay lowered his head with a sigh but he insisted on a written order the king scribbled on a paper the king orders the swiss to lay down their arms and return into barracks this was what voices were crying throughout the tuileries on the stairs and in the rooms and halls as this order restored some quiet to the house the speaker rang his bell and called for the debating to be resumed a member rose and pointed out that an article of the constitution forbade debates in the king's presence quite so said the king but where are you going to put us sire said the speaker we can give you the room and box of the logograph which is vacant owing to the sheet having ceased to appear the ushers hastened to show the party where to go and they had to retrace some of the path they had used to enter what is this on the floor asked the queen it looks like blood the servants said nothing for while the spots might be blood they were ignorant where they came from strange to say the stains grew larger and nearer together as they approached the box to spare her the sight the king quickened the pace and opened the box door himself he bid her enter the queen sprung forward but even as she set foot on the sill she uttered a scream of horror and drew back with her hands covering her eyes the presence of the blood spots was explained for a dead body had been placed in the room it was her almost stepping upon this which had caused her to leap back 
Bless us, said the king. It is poor Count Charny's body. In the same tone as he had said to the gory relic on the pike, this is poor Mandar's head. Indeed, the deputies had snatched the body from the cutthroats and ordered it to be taken into the empty room, without the least idea that the royal family would be consigned to this room in the next ten minutes. It was now carried out, and the guests installed. They talked of cleaning up, but the queen shook her head in opposition, and was the first to take a place over the bloodstains. No one noticed that she burst her shoelaces and dabbled her foot in the red, still warm blood. Oh, Charny, Charny, she murmured. Why does not my lifeblood ooze out here to the last drop to mingle with yours unto all eternity? 3 p.m. struck. The last of her lifeguards was no more, for in and about her palace nearly a thousand nobles and Swiss had fallen. End of chapter 15 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 16 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Widow During the slaying of the last of his adherents, what was the monarch doing? Being hungry. He called for his dinner. Bread and wine, cold fowl and meat and fruit were brought him. He set to eating as if he were at a hunting party, without noticing how he was stared at. Among the eyes fixed on him was a pair burning, because tears would not come. They were the queen's. It seemed to her that she could stay there forever, with her feet in her beloved's blood, living like a flower on the grave with no nourishment but such as death affords. She had suffered much lately, but never so as to see the king eating, for the position of affairs was so serious enough to take away a man's appetite. The assembly, rather than protecting him, had need of protection for itself. It was threatened by a formidable multitude roaring for the dethronement and they obeyed by a decree. It proposed a national convention, the head of the executive power being temporarily suspended from his functions. The civil list was not to be paid. The king and family were to remain with the assembly until order was restored, then they were to be placed in the Luxembourg Palace. Fagniard told the deposed sovereign that it was the only way to save his neck. This decree was proclaimed by torchlight that night. The lights at the Tuileries fell on the ghastly scenes of the searchers and the mourners among the dead. Three thousand five hundred insurgents, to omit two hundred thieves shot by the rioters, had perished. This supposes as many wounded at the least. As the tumbrils rolled with the corpses to the working quarters, a chorus of curses went up against the king, the queen, their foreign camarilla, the nobles who had cancelled them. 
Some swore revenge, and they had it in the coming massacres. Others took up weapons and ran to the palace to vent their spite on the dead Swiss. Others again crowded round the assembly and the abbey, where were prisoners shouting, Vengeance! The Tuileries presented an awful sight, smoking and bloody, deserted by all except the military posts which watched lest, under pretense of finding their dead, pillagers robbed the poor royal residence with its broken doors and smashed windows. The post under the great clock, the main stairs, was commanded by a young captain of the National Guard, who was no doubt inspired by deep pity by the disaster, if one might judge by the expression of his countenance as each cartload of dead was removed. But the dreadful events did not seem to affect him a whit more than they had the deposed king. For, about eleven at night, he was busy in satisfying a monstrous appetite at the expense of a quartern loaf held under his left arm, while his knife-armed right hand unceasingly sliced off hunks of goodly size, which he inserted into a mouth-opening to suit the dimensions of the piece. Leaning against a vestibule pillar, he was watching the silent procession go by, like shades of mothers, wives, and daughters, in the glare of torches set up here and there. They were asking of the extinct crater for the remains of their dear ones. Suddenly the young officer started at the sight of one veiled phantom. "'It is the Countess of Charny,' he muttered. The shadow passed without seeing or hearing him. The captain beckoned to his lieutenant. "'Desire,' he said to him on coming up, "'yonder goes a poor lady of Dr. Gilbert's acquaintance, who is no doubt looking for her husband among the dead. I think of following her in case she should need help and advice. I leave the command to you. Keep good guard for both of us.' "'Hang me if Dr. Gilbert's acquaintance has not a deucedly aristocratic bearing,' remarked Lieutenant Desir Maniquet. "'Because she is an aristocrat. She is a countess,' replied the officer. "'Go along. I will look out.' The Countess of Charny had already turned the first corner of the stairs, when the captain, detaching himself from his men, began to follow her at a respectful distance of fifteen paces. He was not mistaken. Poor Andrea was looking for her husband, not with the anxious thrill of doubt, but with the dull conviction of despair. When Charny had been aroused in the midst of his joy and happiness by the echo of deeds in Paris, he had come, pale but resolute to say to his wife, Dear Andrea, the King of France runs the risk of his life, and needs all his defenders. What ought I do? Go where duty calls you, my dear George, she had replied, and die for the king if you must. But how about you? he asked. Do not be uneasy about me, she said. As I live but in you, God may allow that we shall die together. That's settled all between those great hearts. They did not exchange a word further. When the post-horses came to the door, they set out and were in town in five hours. That same evening, we have seen Charny present himself for duty in his naval uniform at the same time 
that Dr. Gilbert was going to send for him. Since that hour, we know that he never quitted the queen. Andrea had remained alone, shut in, praying. For a space she entertained the idea of imitating her husband, and claiming her station beside the queen, as he had beside the king, but she had not the courage. The day of the ninth passed for her in anguish, but without anything positive. At nine in the morning next day she heard the cannon. It is needless to say that each echo of the warlike thunder thrilled her to the inmost fibre of her heart. The firing died out about two o'clock. Were the people defeated? Were the victors? she questioned, and was told that the people had won the day. What had become of Charny in this terrible fray? She was sure that he had taken a leading part. On making inquiries again, she was told that the Swiss were slain, but most of the noblemen had got away. But the night passed without his coming. In August, night comes late. Not till ten o'clock did Andrea lose hope, when she drew a veil over her face and went out. All along the road she met clusters of women wringing their hands and bands of men howling for revenge. She passed among them, protected by the grief of one and the rage of the other. Besides, they were man-hunting that night, and not for women. The women of both parties were weeping. Arriving on the carousel, Andrea heard the proclamation that the rulers were deposed and safe under the wing of the assembly, which was all she understood. Seeing some carts go by, she asked what they carried, and was told the dead from the palace yards— only the dead were being removed. The turn of the wounded would come later. She thought that Charny would have fallen at the door of the rooms of the king or the queen, so she entered the palace. It was at the moment when Pitou, commanding the main entrance as the captain saw and recognized her, followed. It is not possible to give an idea of the devastation in the Tuileries. Blood poured out of the rooms and spouted like cascades down the stairs. In some of the chambers the bodies yet lay. Like the other searchers, Andrea took a torch and looked at body after body. Thus she made her way to the royal rooms. Patou still followed her. Here, as in the other rooms, she sought in vain. She paused undecided whither to turn. Seeing her embarrassment, the soldier went up to her. "'Alas, I suspect what your ladyship is seeking,' he said. "'Captain Pitou!' Andrea exclaimed. "'At your service.' "'Yes, yes, I have great need of you,' she said, going to him. She took both his hands and continued. "'Do you know what has become of the Count of Charny?' "'I do not, my lady.' but I can help you to look for him. There is one person who can tell us whether he is dead or alive, and where he is in either case, observed Andrea. Who is that, my lady? queried the peasant. The queen, muttered Andrea. Do you know where she is? inquired Pitou. I believe she is in the house, and I have still the hope that my lord Charny is with her. Why, yes, 
"'Yes,' said Patou, snatching at the hope for the mourner's sake. "'Would you like to go into the house?' "'But they may refuse me admission.' "'I'll undertake to get the doors to open.' "'Come, then.' Andrea flung the flambeau from her at the risk of setting fire to the place, for what mattered the Tuileries to her in such desperation, so deep that she could not find tears. From having lived in the palace as the queen's attendant, she knew all the ways, and she led them back by shortcuts to the grand entrance, where Maniquet was on the lookout. "'How is your countess getting on?' he inquired. She hopes to find her lord in the house where we are going, as we may find him, he added in a low voice. But dead, send me four stout lads to the Fouillant's gate, whom I may rely on to defend the body of an aristocrat, as well as though a good patriot's. All right, go ahead with your countess. I will send the men. Andrea was waiting at the garden end, where a sentry was posted but as that was done by Petou, he naturally let his captain pass. The palace gardens were lighted by lamps set mostly on the statue pedestals. As it was almost as warm as in the heat of the day, and the slight breeze barely ruffled the leaves, the lamp flames rose straight like spearheads and lighted up the corpses strewn under the trees. But Andrea felt so convinced that she should find her husband where the queen had taken refuge that she walked on without looking to either right or left. Thus they reached the Fouillant's gate. The royal family had been gone an hour, and were in the record office for the time. To reach them there were two obstacles to pass, the guards and the royal attendants. Patou, as commanding the Tuileries, had the password, and could therefore conduct the lady up to the line of gentlemen. The former favorite of the queen had but to use her name to take the next step. On entering the little room reserved for her, the queen had thrown herself on the bed and bit the pillow amid sobs and tears. Certainly, one who had lost a throne and liberty and perhaps would lose her life, had lost enough for no one to chafe her about the degree of her despair, and not to seek behind her deep abasement if some keener sorrow still did not draw these tears from her eyes and sobs from her bosom. Owing to the respect inspired by this supreme grief, she had been left alone at the first. She heard the room door open, but, as it might be that from the king's, she did not turn. Though she heard steps approaching her pillow, she did not lift her head from it. But suddenly she sprung up as though a serpent had stung her. A well-known voice had simply uttered the single word, "'Madame, Andrea!' cried Marie Antoinette, rising on her elbow. "'What do you want?' "'I want the answer God demanded of Cain when he said, "'What have you done with your brother?' "'With this difference,' returned the queen, "'that Cain had killed his brother, "'whereas I, so gladly, "'would give not only my existence, "'but ten lives,' to save his dear one. Andrea staggered. A cold sweat burst out on her forehead and her teeth chattered. Then he was killed? She faltered, making a great effort. 
do you think i am wailing for my crown demanded the fallen majesty looking hard at her do you believe that if this blood were mine here she showed her dyed foot i should not have washed it off andrea became lividly pale then you know where his body is she said i could take you to it if i were allowed to go forth said the prisoner andrea went out at the door by which pitou was waiting captain she said one of my friends lady of the queens offers to take me where the count's body is may she go out with me on condition that you bring her back when she came said the officer that will do comrade said pitou to his sentry one of the queen's women wants to go out to help us find the body of a brave officer of whom this lady is the widow i will answer for her with my head that is good enough for me captain was the reply the ante-room door opened and the queen appeared but she had a veil wound round her head they went down the stairs the queen leading after a twenty-seven hours session the house had adjourned and the immense hall where so much noise and so many events had been compressed was dumb void and sober as a sepulchre the queen called for a light Patou picked up an extinguished link, lighted it at a lantern, and handed it to her, and she resumed the march. As they passed the entrance door, the queen pointed to it. "'He was killed there,' she said. Andrea did not reply. She seemed a spectre haunting one who had caught her up. The queen lowered the torch to the floor in the lobby, saying, "'Behold!' his blood andrea remained mute the conductress went straight to a closet attached to the logograph box pulled the door open and said as she held up the light to illumine the interior here is his body andrea entered the room knelt down and taking the head upon her knee she said madam i thank you this is all i wanted of you but i have something to ask you won't you forgive me there fell a short silence as though andrea were reflecting yes she replied at length for i shall be with him on the morrow the queen drew a pair of scissors from her bosom where they were hidden like a weapon to be used in an extremity then would you kindly she spoke almost supplicatingly as she held out the joined blades to the mourner andrea cut a lock of hair from the corpse's brow and handed it and the instrument to the other she caught her hand and kissed it but andrea snatched away hers as though the lips of her royal mistress had scorched her ah muttered the queen throwing a last glance on the remains who can tell which of us loved him the most oh my darling george retorted andrea in the same low tone i trust that you at least know now 
that I loved you the best. The queen went back on the way to her prison, leaving Andrea with the remains of her husband, on which a pale moonbeam fell through a small grated window like the gaze of a friend. Without knowing who she was, the two conducted Marie Antoinette, and saw her safely lodged. Relieved of his responsibility toward the soldier on guard, he went out on the terrace to see if the squad he had asked of Maniquet had arrived. The four were waiting. "'Come in,' said Patou. Using the torch which he had taken from the queen's hand, he led his men to the room where Andrea was still gazing on her husband's white but still handsome face in the moonshine. The torchlight made her look up. "'What do you want?' She challenged of the guards as though she thought they came to rob her of the dead. "'My lady,' said Patou, "'we come to carry the body of Count Charny to his house in Coqueron Street.' "'Will you swear to me that it is purely for that?' Andrea asked. Patou held out his hand over the dead body with a dignity of which he might be believed incapable. "'Then I owe you an apology, and I will pray God,' said Andrea, "'in my last moments to spare you and yours such woe as he hath afflicted me with.' The four men took up the warrior on their muskets, and Patou, with his drawn sword, placed himself at the head of the funeral party. Andrea walked beside the corpse, holding the cold and rigid hand in her own. They put the body on the countess's bed when that lady said to the National Guardsman, "'Receive the blessings of one who will pray to God for you tomorrow before him. Captain Patou,' she added, I owe you more than I ever can repay you. May I rely on you for a final service? Order me, madame. Arrange that Dr. Gilbert shall be here at eight o'clock in the morning. Patou bowed and went out. Turning his head as he did so, he saw Andrea kneel at the bed as at an altar. End of chapter 16 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 17 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What Andrea Wanted of Gilbert At eight precisely next day, Gilbert knocked at the house door of the Countess of Charny, on hearing of her request made to Patou, he had asked him for full particulars of the occurrence, and he had pondered over them. As he went out in the morning, he sent for Patou to go to the college where his son and Andreas Sebastian was being educated, and bring him to Cockerhall Street. He was to wait at the door there for the physician to come out. No doubt the old janitor had been informed of the doctor's visit, for he showed him at once into the sitting-room. Andrea was waiting, clad in full mourning. It was clear that she had neither slept nor wept all the night through. Her face was pale and her eyes dry. Never had the lines of her countenance, always indicative of willfulness, carried to the degree of stubbornness, been more firmly fixed. 
It was hard to tell what resolution that loving heart had settled on, but it was plain that it had come to one. This was comprehended by Gilbert at a first glance, as he was a skilled observer and a reasoning physician. He bowed and waited. "'I have asked you to come because I want a favor done, and it must be put to one who cannot refuse it to me.' "'You are right, madame, not perhaps in what you are about to ask, but in what you have done, for you have the right to claim of me anything.' even to my life. She smiled bitterly. Your life, sir, is one of those so precious to mankind that I should be the first to pray God to prolong it and make it happy, far from wishing it abridged. But acknowledge that yours is placed under happy influences, as there are others seemingly doomed beneath a fatal star. Gilbert was silent. "'Mine, for instance,' went on Andrea. "'What do you say about mine? "'Let me recall it briefly,' she said as Gilbert lowered his eyes. "'I was born poor. "'My father was a ruined spendthrift before I was born. "'My childhood was sad and lonesome. "'You knew what my father was.' as you were born on his estate and grew up in our house, and you can measure the little affection he had for me. Two persons, one of whom was bound to be a stranger to me, while the other was unknown, exercised a fatal and mysterious sway over me, in which my will went for naught. One disposed of my soul, the other of my body. I became a mother without ceasing to be a virgin. By this horrid event I nearly lost the love of the only being who ever loved me, my brother Philip. I took refuge in the idea of motherhood and that my babe would love me, but it was snatched from me within an hour of its birth. I was therefore a wife without a husband, a mother without a child. A queen's friendship consoled me. One day chance sent me in a public vehicle with the queen and a handsome young gallant, whom fatality caused me to love, though I had never loved a soul. He fell in love with the queen. I became the confidant in this amour. As I believe you have loved without return, Dr. Gilbert, you can understand what I suffered. Yet this was not enough. It happened on a day that the queen came to me to say, Andrea, save my life, more than my life, my honor. It was necessary that I should become the bride of the man I had loved three years without becoming his wife. I agreed. Five years I dwelt beside that man, flame within, but ice without a statue with a burning heart. Doctor, as a doctor, can you understand what my heart went through? One day, day of unspeakable bliss, my self-sacrifice, silence, and devotion touched that man. For six years I loved him without letting him suspect it by a look. When he came all of a quiver to throw himself at my feet and cry, 
i know all and i love you willing to recompense me god in giving me my husband restored me my child a year flew by like a day nay an hour a minute this year is all i call my life four days ago the lightning fell at my feet the count's honor bid him go to paris to die there i did not make any remark did not shed a tear i went with him hardly had we arrived before he parted from me last night i found him slain there he rest in the next room do you think i am too ambitious to crave to lie in the same grave do you believe you can refuse the request i make you dr gilbert you are a learned physician and a skilful chemist you have been guilty of great wrongs to me and you have much to expiate as regards me well give me a swift sure poison and i shall not merely forgive you all but die with a heart full of gratitude to you madame replied gilbert as you say your life has been one long dolorous trial and for it all glory be yours since you have borne it nobly and saintly like a martyr she gave an impatient toss of the head as if she wanted a direct answer now you say to your torturer you made my life a misery give me a sweet death you have the right to do this and there is reason in your adding you must do it for you have no right to refuse me anything do you still want the poison i entreat you to be friend enough to give it me is life so heavy to you that it is impossible for you to support it death is the sweetest boon man can give me the greatest blessing god may grant me in ten minutes you shall have your wish madame responded gilbert bowing and taking a step toward the door ah said the lady holding out her hand to him you do me more kindness in an instant than you did harm in all your life god bless you gilbert he hurried out at the door he found fitou and sebastian waiting in a hack sebastian he said to the youth drawing a small vial attached to a gold chain from inside his clothes at his breast take this flask of liquor to the countess of charny how long am i to stay with her as long as you like where am i to find you i shall be waiting here taking the small bottle the young man went indoors in a quarter of an hour he came forth gilbert cast on him a rapid glance he brought back the tiny flask untouched what did she say asked gilbert not from your hand my child what did she do then she fell a-weeping 
she is saved said gilbert come my boy and he embraced him more tenderly than ever before in clasping him to his heart he heard the crackling of paper what is that he asked with a nervous laugh of joy do you by chance carry your compositions in your breast pocket there uh, i had forgotten said the youth taking a parchment from his pocket the countess gave it me and says it is to be deposited in the proper registry the doctor examined the paper it was a document which empowered in default of heirs male to the titles of philip de tavernay knight of redcastle sebastian emile gilbert son of andrea tavernay countess of charnay to wear that title honorary until the king should make it good to him by favor of his mother's service to the crown and perhaps award him the estates to maintain the dignity keep it said gilbert with a melancholy smile as well dated from the greek calends the king i fear will never more dispose of more than six feet by three of landed property in his once kingdom of france gilbert could jest for he believed andrea saved he had reckoned without marat a week after he learned that the scoundrel had denounced the favorite of the queen and that the widowed countess of charny had been arrested and lodged in the old abbey prison end of chapter seventeen recording by john vanstan savannah georgia Chapter Eighteen of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Assembly and the Commune. It was the Commune which had caused the attack on the palace, which the king must have seen, for he took refuge in the house, and not in the city hall. The Commune wanted to smother the wolf, the she-wolf, and the whelps between two blankets in their den this shelter to the royals converted the assembly into royalists it was asserted that the luxembourg palace assigned to the king as a residence had a secret communication with those catacombs which burrow under paris so that he might get away at any hour the assembly did not want to quarrel with the commune over such a trifle and allowed it to choose the royal house of detention the city pitched on the temple it was not a palace but a prison under the town's hand an old lonely tower strong heavy lugubrious in it philip the fair broke up the middle ages revolting against him and was royalty to be broken down in it now all the houses in the neighborhood were illuminated as the royal captives were taken hither to the part called the palace from count artois making it his city residence they were happy to hold in bondage the king no more but the friend of the foreign foe the great enemy of the revolution and the ally of the nobles and the clergy the royal servants looked at the lodgings with stupefaction in their tearful eyes were still the splendors of the kingly dwellings while this was not even a prison into which was flung their master but a kennel misfortune was not to have any majesty but through strength of mind or dullness 
the king remained unaffected and slept on the poverty-stricken bed as tranquilly as in his palace perhaps more so at this time the king would have been the happiest man in the world had he been given a country cottage with ten acres a forge a chapel and a chaplain and a library of travel books with his wife and children but it was altogether different with the queen the proud lioness did not rage at the sight of her cage but that was because so sharp a sorrow ached in her heart that she was blind and insensible to all around her the men who had done the fighting in the capture of the royalist stronghold were willing that the prisoners swiss and gentlemen should be tried by court-martial but marat shrieked for massacre as making shorter work than even a drumhead court danton yielded to him before the snake the lion was cowed and slunk away trying to act the fox the city wards pressed the assembly to create an extraordinary tribunal it was established on the twentieth and condemned a royalist to death the execution took place by torchlight with such horrible effect that the executioner in the act of holding up the lopped off head to the mob yelled and fell dead off upon the pavement the revolution of seventeen eighty nine with necay bailly and Saïs, ended in seventeen ninety that of barnave lafayette and mirabeau in seventeen ninety two while the red revolution the bloody one of danton marat and robespierre was commencing lafayette repulsed instinctively by the army which he had called upon in an address to march on paris and restore the king had fled abroad meanwhile the austrians whom the queen had prayed to see in the moonlight from her palace windows had captured Longueville. The other extremity of France, La Vendée, had risen on the eve of this surrender. To meet this condition of affairs, the assembly assigned Dumouriez to the command of the Army of the East, ordered the arrest of Lafayette, decreed the raising of Longueville when it should be retaken, banished all priests who would not take the oath of allegiance, authorized house-to-house -house visits for aristocrats and weapons, and sold all the property of fugitives the commune with marat as its prophet set up the guillotine on carousel square with an apology that it could only send one victim a day owing to the trouble of obtaining convictions on the twenty eighth of august the assembly passed the law on domiciliary visits the rumor spread that the austrian and prussian armies had effected their junction and that Longueville had fallen. It followed that the enemy, so long prayed for by the king, the nobles, and the priests, was marching upon Paris and might be here in six stages if nothing stopped him. What would happen then to this boiling crater, from which the shocks had made the old world quake the last three years? The insolent jest of Boya would be realized that not one stone would be left upon another. It was considered a sure thing that a general, terrible, and inexorable doom was to fall on the Parisians after their city was destroyed. A letter found in the Tuileries had said, quote, In the rear of the army will travel the courts, informed on the journey by the fugitives of the misdeeds and their authors, so that no time will be lost in trying the Jacobins in the Prussian king's camp and getting their halters ready. 
the stories also came of the ulhans seizing republican local worthies and cropping their ears if they acted thus on the threshold what would they do when within the gates it was no longer a secret a great throne would be erected before the heap of ruins which was paris all the population would be dragged and beaten into passing before it the good and the bad would be sifted apart as on the last judgment day the good in other words the religious and the royalists would pass to the right and france would be turned over to them for them to work their pleasure the bad the rebels would be sent to the left where would be waiting the guillotine invented by the revolution which would perish by it but to face the foreign invader had this poor people any self-support those whom they had worshipped enriched and paid to defend her would they stand up for her now no the king conspired with the enemy and from the temple where he was confined continued to correspond with the prussians and austrians the nobility marched against france and were formed in battle array by her princes her priests made the peasants revolt from their prison cells the royalist prisoners cheered over the defeats of the french by the prussians and the prussians at longueville were hailed by the captives in the abbey and the temple in consequence danton the man for extremes rushed into the rostrum when the country is in danger everything belongs to the country he said all the dwellings were searched and three thousand persons arrested two thousand guns were taken terror was needed they obtained it the worst mischief from the search was one not foreseen the mob had entered rich houses and the sight of luxuries had redoubled their hatred though not inciting them to pillage there was so little robbery that beaumarchais then in jail said that the crowd nearly drowned a woman who plucked a rose in his gardens on this general search day the commune summoned before its bar a girondist editor curie dupre who took refuge at the war ministry from not having time to get to the house insulted by one of its members the girondist summoned the commune's president huguenin before its bar for having allowed the ministry to take guerry by force Huguenin will not come, and he was ordered to be arrested by main force while a fresh election for a commune was decreed. The present one determined to hold office, and thus was civil war set going. No longer the mob against the king, citizens against aristocrats, the cottage against the castle, but hovels against houses, ward against ward, pike to pike, and mob to mob. Marat called for the massacre of the assembly. That was nothing, as people were used to his shrieks for wholesale slaughter. But Robespierre, the prudent, wary, vague, and double-meaning denunciator, came out boldly for all to fly to arms, not merely to defend, but to attack. He must have judged the commune was very strong to do this. The physician who might have his fingers on the pulse of France at this period must have felt the circulation run up at every beat. The assembly feared the working men who had broken in the Tuileries gate and might dash in the assembly doors. It feared, too, that if it took up arms against the commune, it would not only be abandoned by the revolutionists, 
but be bolstered up by the moderate royalists in that case it would be utterly lost it was felt that any event however slight might lead this disturbance to colossal proportions the event related by one of our characters who has dropped from sight for some time and who took a share in it occurred in the chatelet prison end of chapter eighteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter nineteen of the countess of charny by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain captain beausire appears again after the capture of the tuileries a special court was instituted to try cases of theft committed at the palace two or three hundred thieves caught red-handed had been shot off-hand but there were as many more who had contrived to hide their acts among the number of these sly depredators was captain beausire a corporal of the french guards once on a time but more conspicuous as a card sharper for his hand in the plot of robbers by which the court jewellers were nearly defrauded of the celebrated set of diamonds which we have written about under their historic name of the queen's necklace this beausire had entered the palace but in the rear of the conquerors he was too full of sense to be among the first where danger lay in taking the lead it was not his political opinions that carried him into the king's home to weep over the fall of monarchy or to applaud the triumph of the people bless your innocence no captain beausire came as a mere sightseer soaring above those human weaknesses known as opinions and having but one aim in view to wit to ascertain whether those who lost a throne might not have lost at the same time some article of value rather more portable and easy to put out of sight to be in harmony with the situation beausire had clapped on an enormous red cap was armed with the largest sized sabre and had splashed his shirt front and hands with blood from the first quite dead man he stumbled upon like the wolf skulking round the edge and the vulture hovering over the battlefield perhaps taken for having helped in this slaughter some believed he had been one of the vanquishers the most did so accept him as they heard him bellow death to the aristocrats and saw him poke under beds dash open cupboards and even bureau drawers in order to make sure that no aristocrat had hidden there however for the discomfiture of captain beausire at this time a man was present who did not peep under beds or open drawers but who having entered while the firing was hot though he carried no arms with the conquerors though he did no conquering walked about with his hands behind his back as he might have done in a public park on a holiday cold and calm in his threadbare but well-brushed black suit he was content to raise his voice from time to time to say do not forget citizens that you are not to kill women and not to touch the jewels he did not seem to feel any right to censor those who were killing men and throwing the furniture out of the windows at the first glance he had distinguished that captain beausire was not one of the storming parties the consequence was that about half-past nine pitou who had the post of honour as we know guarding the main entrance 
saw a sort of woe-begone and slender giant stalk toward him from the interior of the palace, who said to him with politeness but also with firmness, as if his mission was to modify disorder with order and temper vengeance with justice. "'Captain, you will see a fellow swagger down the stairs presently, wearing a red cap, swinging a sabre, and making broad gestures. Arrest him, and have your men search him, for he has picked up a case of diamonds.' "'Yes, Master Maillard,' replied Pitou, touching his cap. "'Aha! So you know me, my friend?' said the ex-usher of the Chatelet prison. "'I rather think I do know you,' exclaimed Pitou. "'Don't you remember me, Master Maillard? We took the Bastille together.' "'That's very likely.' "'We also marched to Versailles together in October.' "'I did go there at that time.' "'Of course you did, and the proof is that you shielded the ladies who went to call on the Queen.' and you had a duel with a janitor who would not let you go in. Then, for old acquaintance' sake, you will do what I say, eh? That and anything else, all you order, you are a regular patriot, you are. I pride myself on it, replied Maillard, and that is why I cannot permit the name we bear to be sullied. Attention, this is our man. In fact, at this time, Beausire stamped down the grand stairs, waving his large sword and shouting, "'The nation forever!' Pitou made a sign to Maniquet and another, who placed themselves at the door without any parade, and he went to wait for the sham rioter at the foot of the stairs. With a glance, the suspicious character noticed the movements, and as they no doubt disquieted him, he stopped and made a turn to go back as if he had forgotten something. "'Beg pardon, citizen,' said Pitou. "'This is the way out.' "'Oh, is it?' "'And as the order is to vacate the Tuileries, out you go, if you please.' Beausire lifted his head and continued his descent. At the last step he touched his hand to his red cap, and in an emphasized military tone said— I say, brother officer, can a comrade go out or not? You are going out, returned Pitou. Only in the first place you must submit to a little formality. Hem, what is it, my handsome captain? You will have to be searched. Search a patriot, a capturer of the tyrant's den? A man who has been exterminating aristocrats? That's the order, so, comrade, since you are a fellow soldier, said the National Guardsman. Stick your big toad sticker in its sheath, now that all the aristos are slain, and let the search be done in good part, or, if not, I shall be driven to employ force. Force, said Beausire. Ha! "'You talk in this strain because you have twenty men at your back, my pretty captain. "'But if you and I were alone together—' "'If we were alone together, citizen,' returned the man from the country, "'I'd show you what I should do. "'In this way I should seize your left wrist with my right hand. "'With my left I should wrench your sabre from your grasp like this, 
and I should snap it under my foot just like this, as being no longer worthy of handling by an honest man after a thief. Putting into practice the theory he had announced, Pitou disarmed the sham patriot, and, breaking the sword, tossed the hilt afar. "'A thief! I, Captain de Beausire, a thief!' thundered the conqueror in the red cap. "'Search Captain Beausire with the de,' said Pitou, pushing the card sharper into the midst of his men. "'Well, go ahead with your search!' replied the victim of suspicion, meekly dropping his arms. They had not needed his permission to proceed with the ferreting, but to the great astonishment of Pitou, and especially of Maillard, all their searching was in vain. Whether they turned the pockets inside out, or examined the hems and linings, all they found on the ex-corporal was a pack of playing cards so old that the faces were hardly to be told from the backs, as well as the sum of eleven cents. Pitou looked at Maillard, who shrugged his shoulders as much as to say, I have missed it somehow, but I do not know what I can do about it now. Go through him again, said Pitou, one of whose principal traits was patience. They tried it again, but the second search was as unfruitful as the former. They only found the same pack of cards and eleven cents. "'Well,' taunted Beausire triumphantly, "'is a sword still disgraced by having been handled by me?' "'No,' replied Pitou. "'And to prove it, if you are not satisfied with the excuses I tender you, "'one of my men shall lend you his, "'and I will give you any other satisfaction you may like.' "'Thanks, no, young sir.' said the other, drawing himself up to his full height. "'You acted under orders, and an old veteran like me knows that an order is sacred. Now I beg to remark that Madame de Beausire must be anxious about my long absence, and if I am allowed to retire—' "'Go, sir,' responded Pitou. "'You are free.' Beausire saluted in a free and easy style and took himself out of the palace. Pitou looked round for Maillard, but he was not by. "'I fancy I saw him go up the stairs,' said one of the Haramont men. "'You saw clearly, for he is coming down,' observed Pitou. Maillard was in fact descending, and as his long legs took the steps two by two, he was soon on the landing. "'Well?' "'Did you find anything?' he inquired. "'No,' rejoined the captain. "'Then I have been luckier than you, for I lighted on the case.' "'So we were wrong, eh?' "'No, we were right.' Maillard opened the case and showed the old setting from which had been prized all the stones. "'Why, uh, what does this mean?' Pitou wanted to know that the scamp guessed what might happen, picked out the diamonds, and as he thought the setting would be in his way, he threw it with the case into the closet where I found it. That's clear enough, but what has become of the stones? He found some means of juggling them away. The trickster. Has he been long gone? inquired Maillard. 
as you came down he was passing through the middle yard which way did he take he went toward the waterside good-bye captain are you going after him master maillard i want to make a thorough job of it returned the ex-usher and unfolding his long legs like a pair of compasses he set off in pursuit of captain beausire Petou was thinking the matter over when he recognized the countess of charny and the events occurred which we have related in their proper time and place not to mix them up with this present matter we think falls into line here End of chapter nineteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Twenty of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Emetic. Rapid as was Maillard's gait, he could not catch up with his quarry, who had three things in his favor, namely, ten minutes' start, the darkness, and the number of passengers on the carousel, in the thick of whom he disappeared. But when he got out upon the Tuileries quay, the ex-usher kept on, for he lived in the working quarter and it was not out of his way home to keep to the waterside. A great concourse was upon the bridges, flocking to the open space before the Palace of Justice, where the dead were laid out for identification, and people sought for their dear ones with hope, or rather fear. Maillard followed the crowd. At a corner there he had a friend in a druggist or apothecary, as they said in those days. He dropped in there, sat down, and chattered of what had gone on, while the surgeons rushed in and about to get the materials they wanted for the injured. For among the corpses a moan, a scream, or a palpable breathing showed that some wretch still lived, and he was hauled out and carried to the great hospital after rough dressing. So there was a great hubbub in the worthy chemist's store but maillard was not in the way on such occasions they were delighted to see a patriot of the degree of a hero of the bastille who was balm itself to the lovers of liberty he had been there upwards of a quarter of an hour with his long legs tucked well under him and taking up as little room as possible when a woman of the age of thirty-eight or so came in under the garb of most abject poverty she preserved a vestige of former opulence and a bearing of studied aristocracy if not natural but what particularly struck maillard was her marked likeness to the queen he would have cried out with amaze but for his having great presence of mind she held a little boy by the hand and came up to the counter with an odd timidity veiling the wretchedness of her garments as much as she could though that was the more manifest from her taking extreme care of her face and her hands for some time it was impossible for her to make herself heard owing to the uproar but at last she addressed the master of the establishment saying please sir i want an emetic for my husband who is ill what sort do you want citizeness asked the dispenser of drugs any sort as long as it does not cost more than eleven cents this exact amount struck maillard for it will be remembered that eleven coppers were the findings in beausire's pockets why should it not cost more than that inquired the chemist because 
that is all the small change my man could give me put up some tartar emetic said the apothecary to an assistant and give it to the citizeness he turned to attend to other demands while the assistant made up the powder but maillard who had nothing to do to distract his attention concentrated all his wits on the woman who had but eleven cents there you are citizeness here's your physic said the drug clerk now then to sight said the woman with a draw habitual to her give the gentleman the eleven cents my boy there it is replied the boy putting the pile of coppers on the counter come home quick mamma oliva for papa is waiting he tried to drag her away repeating why don't you come quick papa is in such a hurry hi hold on citizeness cried the budding druggist you have only given me nine cents what do you mean by only nine exclaimed the woman why look here you can reckon for yourself the woman did so and saw there were just nine what have you done with the other two coins you wicked boy she asked me not know nothing about em whimpered the child do come home mamma oliva you must know for i let you carry the money i must have lost em but come along home whined the boy you have a bewitching little fellow there citizeness remarked maillard he appears sharp-witted but you will have to take care lest he become a thief how dare you sir a thief cried the woman called oliva why do you say such a thing i should like to know only because he has not lost the two cents but hid them in his shoe me retorted the boy what a lie in the left shoe citizeness in the left said maillard in spite of the yell of young toussaint mademoiselle oliva took off his left shoe and found the coppers in it she handed them to the apothecary's clerk and dragged away the urchin with threats of punishment which would have appeared terrible to the bystanders if they had not been accompanied by soft words which no doubt sprung from maternal affection unimportant as the incident was in itself it certainly would have passed without comment amid the surrounding grave circumstances if the resemblance of the heroine to the queen had not impressed the witness the result of his pondering over this was that he went up to his friend in drugs and said to him in a respite from trade did you not notice the likeness of that woman who just went out to the queen said the other laughing yes so you remarked it the same as i oh ever so long ago it is a matter of history i do not understand do you not remember the celebrated trial of the queen's necklace oh you must not put such a question to an usher of the law courts he could not forget that well you must recall one nicole legay alias oliver oh of course you are right she played herself as the queen upon the prince cardinal rohan 
while she was living with a discharged soldier a bully and card cheat a spy and recruiter named beausire what do you say broke out maillard as though snake-bitten a rogue named beausire repeated the druggist is it he whom she styles her husband asked maillard yes and for whom she came to get the physic the rascal has been drinking too hard an emetic continued maillard as one on the track of an important secret and did not wish to be turned astray a vomitory yes by jupiter i have nailed my man exclaimed the visitor what man the man who had only eleven cents captain de beausire in short that is if i knew where he lives well i know if you do not it is close by number six juvierie street then i am not astonished at young beausire stealing two cents from his mother for he is the son of the cheat no cheat there his living likeness a chip off the old block my dear friend continued maillard straight as a dime how long does your dose take to operate immediately after taking but these fellows fight shy of medicine he will play fast and lose before he takes it and his wife will have to make a cup of soup to wash the taste out of his mouth you mean i may have time to do what i have to do i hope so you seem to feel great interest in our captain beausire so much so that for fear he will be very bad i am going to get a couple of male nurses for him leaving the drug store with a silent laugh the only one he indulged in maillard hurried back to the tuileries Patou was absent, for we know he was attending on the Countess of Charny. But Lieutenant Maniquet was guarding the post. They recognized each other. "'Well, Citizen Maillard, did you overtake the fellow?' asked Maniquet. "'No, but I am on his track.' "'Faith, it is a blessing. For though we did not find the diamonds on the knave, somehow I am ready to bet that he has them.' "'Make the bet, Citizen.' and you will win said the usher good and can we help you catch him you can in what way citizen maillard we are under your orders i want a couple of honest men you can take at random then boulanger and molicar step out this way that was all the usher desired and with the two soldiers of Haramal, he proceeded at the double-quick to the residence of Beausire. In the house, they were guided by the cries of young Toussaint, still suffering from a correction not maternal, as Papa Beausire, on account of the gravity of the misdemeanor, had deemed it his duty to intervene and add some cuffs from his hard hand to the gentle slap which Oliver had administered much against her will with her softer one to her beloved offspring the door was locked in the name of the law open called out maillard 
A conversation in a low voice ensued, during which young Toussaint was hushed, as he thought that the abstraction of the two cents from his mother was a heinous crime, for which justice had risen in her wrath, while Beausire, who attained it to the domiciliary visits, tried to tranquilize Oliver, though he was not wholly at his ease. He had, moreover, gulped down the tartar as soon as he had chastised his son. Mademoiselle Beausire had to take her course, and she opened the door just as Maillard was going to knock for a second time. The three men entered to the great terror of Oliva and Master Toussaint, who ran to hide under a ragged straw-bottomed chair. Beausire had thrown himself on the bed, and Maillard had the satisfaction of seeing by the light of a cheap candle smoking in an iron holder that the physic paper was flat and empty on the night-table. The potion was swallowed, and they had only to abide the effects. On the march, Maillard had related to the volunteers what had happened, so that they were fully cognizant of the state of matters. "'Citizens,' he restricted himself to saying, "'Captain Beausire is exactly like that princess in the Arabian Nights' entertainment, who never spoke unless compelled, but who, whenever she opened her mouth, let fall a diamond. Do not, therefore, let Beausire spit out a word unless learning what it contains. I will wait for you at the municipality offices. When the gentleman has nothing more to say to you, take him to the Chatelet prison, where you will say Citizen Maillard sent him for safekeeping, and you will join me at the city hall with what he shall have delivered." The National Guards nodded in token of passive obedience, and placed themselves with both sire between them. The apothecary had given good measure for eleven cents, and the effect of the emetic was most satisfactory. About three in the morning, Mayhard saw his two soldiers coming to him. They brought a hundred thousand francs worth of diamonds of the purest water, wrapped in a copy of the prison register stating that both sire was under ward and lock. In his name and the two Haramontes, Maillard placed the gems in charge of the commune attorney, who gave them a certificate that they had deserved the thanks of the country. End of chapter 20 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 21 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Beausire's Bravado Imprisoned in the Chatelet, Beausire was brought before the jury specially charged to deal with thefts committed in the taking of the Tulavis. He could not deny what was only too clearly brought forth, so he most humbly confessed his deed and sued for clemency. His antecedents being looked up, they so little edified the court on his moral character that he was condemned to five years in the hawks and transportation to the plantations. In vain did he allege that he had been led into crime by the most commendable feelings, namely, to provide a peaceful future for his wife and child. Nothing could alter the doom, and as the court was one without appeal and the sentences active, it was likely to be executed immediately. Better for him, had it not been deferred for a day. Fate would have it, 
that one of his old associates was put in prison with him on the eve of his sentence being carried out. They renewed acquaintance and exchanged confidences. The newcomer was, he said, concerned in a well-matured plot which was to burst on Strand Place or before the Justice Hall. The conspirators were to gather in a considerable number, as if to see the executions taking place at either spot, and raising shouts of, "'Long live the king! The Prussians are coming! Hurrah! Death to the nation!' They were to storm the city hall, call to their help the National Guards, two-thirds royalist, or at least constitutional, maintain the abolition of the commune, and, in short, accomplish the loyal counter-revolution. The mischief was that Beausire's old partner was the very man who was to give the signal. The others in the plot, ignorant of his arrest, would hie to the place of execution, and the rising would fall to the ground from nobody being there to start the cries. This was the more lamentable, added the friend, from there never being a better arranged plot, and one that promised a more certain result. His arrest was the more regrettable still, as in the turmoil the prisoner would most certainly be rescued and get away, so that he would elude the branding iron and the galleys. Though Captain Beausire had no settled opinions, he leaned toward royalty, so he began to deplore the check to the scheme, in the first place for the king's sake, and then for his own. All at once he struck his brow, for he was illumined with a bright idea. "'Why, this first execution is to be mine,' he said. "'Of course, and it would have been a rich streak of luck for you.' "'But you say that it will not matter who gives the cue, for the plot will burst out?' "'Yes, but who will do this?' when I am caged, and cannot communicate with the lads outside. "'I,' replied Beausire, in lofty, tragic tones, "'will I not be on the spot, since it is I whom they are to put in the pillory? So I am the man who will cry out the arranged shouts. It is not so very hard a task, methinks.' "'I always said you were a genius,' remarked the captain's friend, after being wonderstruck. Beausire bowed. "'If you do this,' continued the royalist plotter, "'you will not only be delivered and pardoned, but still further, when I proclaim the success of the outbreak is due to you.' you can shake hands with yourself beforehand on the great reward you will earn i am not going to do the deed for anything like lucre said the adventurer with the most disinterested of manners we all know that rejoined the friend but when the reward comes along i advise you not to refuse it oh if you think i ought to take it faltered the gambler i press you to and if i had any power over you i should order you resumed the companion majestically i give in said beausire well to-morrow we will breakfast together 
for the governor of the jail will not refuse this favor to two old pals and we will crack a jolly good bottle of the rosy to the success of this plot though beausire may have had his doubts on the kindness of prison governors the request was granted to his great satisfaction it was not one bottle they drained but several at the fourth beausire was a red-hot royalist luckily the warders came to take him to the strand before he emptied the fifth he stepped into the cart as into a triumphal chariot disdainfully surveying the throng for whom he was storing up such a startling surprise on notre dame bridge a woman and a little boy were waiting for him to come along he recognized poor oliva in tears and young toussaint who on beholding his father among the soldiers said serves him right what did he beat me for the proud father smiled protectingly and would have waved a blessing but his hands were tied behind his back the city hall square was crammed with people they knew that this felon had robbed in the palace and they had no pity for him hence the guards had their work cut out to keep them back when the cart stopped at the pillory foot beausire looked on at the uproar and scuffling as much as to say you shall see some fun in a while this is nothing to the joker i have up my sleeve when he appeared on the pillory platform there was general hooting but at the supreme moment when the executioner opened the culprit's shirt and pulled down the sleeve to bare the shoulder and then stooped down to take the red-hot brand that happened which always does all was silent before the majesty of the law beausire snatched at this lull and gathering all his powers he shouted in a full ringing and sonorous voice long live the king hurrah for the prussians down with the nation however great a tumult the prisoner may have expected the one this raised much exceeded it the protest was not in shouts but howls the whole gathering uttered an immense roar and rushed on the pillory this time the guards were insufficient to protect their man their ranks were broken the scaffold swarmed upon the executioner thrown over and the condemned one torn from the stand and flung into the surging mob he would have been flayed dismembered and torn to pieces but for one man arrayed in his scarf as a town officer who luckily saw it all from the city hall steps it was the commune attorney manuel he had strongly humane feelings which he often had to keep hidden but they moved him at such times with great difficulty he fought his way to beausire and laying hold of him said in a loud voice in the name of the law i claim this man there was hesitation he unloosed his scarf floating it like a flag and called for all good citizens to assist him a score clustered round him and drew beausire half dead from the crowd manuel had him carried into the hall which was seriously threatened so deep was the exasperation manuel came out on the balcony this man is guilty he said but of a crime for which he has not been tried let us select a jury from among us to assemble in a room of the city hall whatever the sentence it shall be executed but let us have a legal sentence 
is it not curious that such language should be used on the eve of the massacre of the prisoners by one of the men accused of having organized it at the peril of his life this pledge appeased the mob beausire was dragged before the improvised jury he tried to defend himself but his second crime was as patent as the first only in the popular eye it was much graver was it not a dreadful crime and deserving of condign punishment to cheer the king who was put in prison as a traitor to hurrah for the prussians who had captured a french town and to wish death to the nation in agony on a bed of pain so the jury decided not only that the culprit deserved the capital penalty but that to mark the shame which the law had sought to define by substituting the guillotine for the gallows that he should be hanged and on the spot where he committed the offence consequently the headsman of paris had his orders to erect a gibbet on the pillory stand the view of this work and the certainty that the prisoner could not escape them pacified the multitude this was the matter which the assembly was busied with it saw that everything tended to a massacre a means of spreading terror and perpetuating the commune the end was that they voted that the commune had acted to merit the gratitude of the country and robespierre after praising it asserted that the house had lost the public confidence and that the only way for the people to save themselves was to retake their powers so the masses were to be without check but with a heart full of vengeance and charged to continue the august massacre of those who had fought for the palace on the tenth by following them into the prisons it was the first of september and a storm seemed to oppress everybody with its suspended lightning end of chapter twenty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Twenty Two of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Set upon dying. Thus stood matters when Doctor Gilbert's officiator, the word servant was abolished as non-republican, announced at nine in the evening that his carriage was at the door. He donned his hat, buttoned up his outer coat, and was going out when he saw the doorway blocked by a man in a cloak and a slouch hat. Gilbert recoiled a step, for all was hostile that came in the dark at such a period. "'It is I, Gilbert,' said a kindly voice. "'Cogliostro!' exclaimed the doctor. "'Good. There you are forgetting again that I am no longer under that name, but bear that of Baron Zanone. At the same time, Gilbert—' For you I am changed in neither name nor heart, and am ever your Joseph Balsamo, I hope. Yes, and the proof is that I was going to find you. I suspected as much, and that is what has brought me, said the magician. For you can imagine that in such times I do not go into the country, as Robespierre is doing. That is why I feared that I should not find you at home and i am happy to meet you but come in i beg well here i am say your wish said cogliostro following the master into the most retired room do you know what is going on 
asked the host, as soon as both were seated. "'You mean what is going to happen? For at present nothing is doing,' observed the other. "'No, you are right. But something dreadful is brewing, eh?' "'Dreadful, in sooth. But such is sometimes needful.' "'Master, you make me shudder.' said Gilbert, when you utter such sayings with your inexorable coolness. I cannot help it. I am but the echo of fate. Gilbert hung his head. Do you recall what I told you when I warned you of the fate of Marquis Favras? The physician started. Strong in facing most men, he felt weak as a child before this mysterious character. I told you, went on the enigma, that if the king had a grain of common sense, which I hoped he had not, he would exercise the wish for self-preservation to flee. He did so. Yes, but I meant while it was in good time. It was, you know, too late when he went. I added, you may remember, that if he and the queen and the nobles remained, I would bring on the revolution. You are right again, for the revolution rules, said Gilbert with a sigh. Not completely, but it is getting on. Do you further recall that I showed you an instrument invented by a friend of mine, Dr. Guillotin? Well, that beheading machine which I exhibited in a drinking-glass to the future queen at Tavernay Manor. You will remember, though you were but a boy at the time, no higher than that. You, already courting Nicole, the same Nicole whose husband Beausire, by the way, is being hung at the present speaking, not before he deserved it. Well, that machine is hard at work." too slowly, since swords and pikes have to be supplementing its blade," said Gilbert. "'Listen,' said Cogliostro. "'You must grant that we have a most blockheaded crew to deal with. We gave the aristocrats, the court, and the monarchs all sorts of warnings, without their profiting or being advised by them. We took the Bastille their persons from Versailles, their palace in Paris, we shut up their king in the temple, and the aristocrats in the other prisons, and all serves for no end. The king, under lock and bolt, rejoices at the Prussians taking his towns, and the lords in the abbey cheer the Germans. They drink wine under the noses of poor people who cannot get wholesome water, and eat truffle pies before beggars who cannot get bread. On King Wilhelm of Prussia being notified that if he passes Longvie into French territory, as it will be the warrant for the king's death, he replies, however embittered may be the fate of the royal family, our armies must not retrograde. I hope with all my heart to arrive in time to save the king of France, but my duty before all is to save Europe." and he marches forward to Verdun. 
it is fairly time to end this nonsense. And with whom? cried Gilbert. With the king, the queen, and their following. Would you murder a king and a queen? Oh, no. That would be a bad blunder. They must be publicly tried, condemned, and executed, as we have the example set by the execution of Charles I. But one way or another, doctor, we must get rid of them, and the sooner the better. Who has decided this? protested Gilbert. Let me hear. Is it the intelligence? the honor and the conscience of the people of whom you speak, when genius, loyalty, and justice were represented by Mirabeau, Lafayette, and Vergniaud. If you had said, Louis must die in the names of those three, I should have shuddered, but I should doubt. In whose name do you pronounce now? Hissed actors, paltry editors, hotheads like Marat, who have to be bled to cool them when they shriek for thousands of heads? Leave these failures who think they are wonders, because they can undo in a stroke the work which it has taken nature a few score years, for they are villains, master. And you ought not to associate with such burlesques of men. My dear Gilbert, you are mistaken again, said the prime mover, they are not villains. You misuse the word. They are mere instruments. Of destruction? Aye, but for the benefit of an idea. The enfranchisement of the people, Gilbert. Liberty. The Republic. Not merely French. God forbid me having so selfish an idea but universal, the federation of the free world. No, these men have not genius or honor or conscience, but something stronger, more inexorable, less resistible. They have instinct. Like Attila's. You have hit it. Of Attila who called himself the scourge of God, and came with the barbaric blood of the North to redeem a Roman civilization, corrupted by the feasting, debauched emperors. But, in brief, to sum up instead of generalizing, whither will tend a massacre? asked Gilbert. To a plain issue. We will compromise the assembly and the commune, and the people of Paris. We must soak Paris in blood. For you understand that Paris is the brain of France, or of Europe, so that Paris, feeling that there is no forgiveness possible for her, will rise like one man, urge France before her, and hurl the enemy off the sacred soil. But you are not a Frenchman. What odds is it to you? asked Gilbert. You were not an American. 
but you were glad to have the rebel Paul Jones take you to America, and aid the rebels to free the colonies from the British yoke. How can a man of superior metal and intelligence say to another, Do not meddle with us, for you are not French? Are not the affairs of France those of the world? Is France working solely for herself now, think you? Hark, you Gilbert. I have debated all these points with a mind far stronger than yours. The man, or devil, named Altatus. In one day he made a calculation of the quantity of blood which must be shed before the sun rises on the free world. His reasonings did not shake my conviction. I marched on. I march on, and on I shall march, overturning all that stands in my path, and saying to myself, in a calm voice, as I look around with a serene look, Woe to the obstacle, for this is the future which is coming. Now, you have the pardon of someone to ask? I grant it beforehand. Tell me the name of the man, or the woman. I wish to save a woman whom neither of us, master, can allow to die. The Countess of Charny. The mother of Sebastian Gilbert. You know that it is Danton who, as Minister of Justice, has the prison keys. Yes, but I also know that the chief of the Invisibles can say to Danton, Open or shut that door. Cogliostro rose and, going over to a writing desk, wrote a cabalistic sign on a small square of paper. Presenting this to Gilbert, he said, Go and find Danton, and ask him anything you like. Gilbert rose. What are you going to do? When the king's turn comes. I intend to be elected to the convention so as to vote with all my power against his death. Be it so. I can understand that, said the leader. Act as your conscience dictates, but promise me one thing. What is it? There was a time when you would have promised without a condition, Gilbert. At that time you would not have told me that a nation could heal itself by murdering, or a people gain by massacre. Have it your own way. Only promise me that when the king shall be executed, you will follow the advice I give you. Any advice from the master will be precious, he said, holding out his hand. And will be followed, persisted Cogliostro. I swear, if not hurtful to my conscience. Gilbert, you are unjust. I have offered you much. Have I ever required aught of you? No, master, was Gilbert's reply. And now, furthermore, you give me a life dearer than mine own. Go said the arch-revolutionist, and may the genius of France 
one of whose noblest sons you are, ever guide you. The Count went out, and Gilbert followed him, stepping into the carriage, still waiting, to be driven to the Minister of Justice. Danton was waiting for one of two things. If he turned to the commune, he and Marat and Robespierre would rule, and he wanted neither of them. Unfortunately, the assembly would not have him, and its support to rule alone was the other alternative. When Gilbert came, he had been wrestling with his wife, who guessed that the massacre was determined upon. He had told her that she talked like a woman in asking him to die rather than let the red tide flow on. "'You say that you will die of the stain, and that my sons will blush for me? No, they will be men some day, and if true Dantons, they will carry their head high. If weak, let them deny me. If I let them commence the massacre by me, for opposing it, do you know what will become of the revolution between that bloodthirsty maniac Marat and that sham utopist Robespierre? I will stay the bloodshed if I can, and if not, I will take all the guilt on my shoulders. The burden will not prevent me marching to my goal, only I shall be the more terrible. Gilbert entered. Come, Dr. Gilbert. I have a word for you. Opening a little study door, he let the visitor into it. How can I be useful to you? he asked. Gilbert took out the paper the Invisible had given him, and presented it to Danton. Ah, you come on his account, do you? What do you desire? The liberation of a woman prisoned in the Abbey. The name... The Countess of Charny. Danton took a sheet of paper and wrote the release. There it is, he said. Are there others you would wish to save? Speak. I should like to save some of the unfortunates. I have all my desire, said Gilbert, bowing. Go, doctor, said the minister, and when you need anything of me, apply direct. I am happy to do anything for you, man to man. Ah, he muttered at the door in showing him out. If I had only your reputation, doctor, as an honorable man. Bearer of the precious paper which assured Andrea's life, the father of her son hastened to the abbey. Though nearly midnight, threatening groups still hung round the door. Gilbert passed through the midst of them and knocked at it. The gloomy panel in the low, arched way was opened. Gilbert shuddered as he went through. It was to be the way to the tomb. The order, presented to the warden, stated that instant release was to be given to the person whom Dr. Gilbert should point out. He named the Countess of Charny, and the governor ordered a turnkey to lead Gilbert to the prisoner's cell. The doctor followed the man up three flights of a spiral staircase, where he entered a cell lighted by a lamp. Pale as marble, in mourning, a woman sat at a table bearing the lamp, reading a chagrin prayer-book adorned with a silver cross. A brand of fire burned in the fireplace. In spite of the sound of the door opening, she did not lift her eyes. The steps approaching did not move her. She appeared absorbed in her book, 
but it was absence of mind, for Gilbert stood several minutes without her turning a leaf. The warder had closed the door with himself on the outer side. "'My lady, the countess,' ventured Gilbert after a while. Raising her eyes, Andrea looked without perceiving at first. The veil of her mind was between her and the speaker, but it was gradually withdrawn. "'Ah! Huh. And is it you, Dr. Gilbert? What do you want?' she inquired. "'Madame, very ugly rumors are afloat about what is going to happen in the prisons.' "'Yes, it is said that the prisoners are to be slaughtered,' rejoined Andrea. "'But you know, Dr. Gilbert, that I am ready to die.' "'I come to take you away, madame,' he continued, bowing. "'Whither would you take me, doctor?' she asked in surprise. "'Wherever you like, madame. You are free.' He showed her the release order signed by Danton, which she read, but instead of returning it she kept it in her hand. "'I might have suspected this,' she observed, trying to smile, but she had forgotten the way. "'You were sure to try to prevent me dying.' "'Madame,' There is but one existence which would be dearer to me than my parents, had I ever known my parents. It is yours. Yes, and that is why you broke your promise to me? I did not, madame, for I sent you the poison. By my son? I did not tell you by what hand I should send it. In short, you have thought of me, Gilbert. So you entered the lion's den for my sake and came forth with the talisman which unseals doors? I told you, madame, that as long as I lived, you should not die. Nay, Dr. Gilbert, I believe that this time I hold death by the hand, said Andrea with something more like a smile than her previous attempt. "'Madame, I declare to you that I will stay you from dying, even though I have to employ force.' Without replying, Andrea tore the order into pieces and tossed them into the fire. "'Try it,' she said. Gilbert uttered an outcry. "'Dr. Gilbert,' said she, "'I have given up the idea of suicide.' but not of dying. I long for death. Gilbert let a groan escape him. All that I ask of you is that you will save my body from outrage after death. It has not escaped it in life. Count Charny rests in the family vault at Boisson. There I spent the happiest days of my life, and I wish to repose by him. In heaven's name, I implore you, and I implore you in the name of my sorrow. It is well, lady. You were right in saying that I am bound to obey you in all points. I go, but I am not vanquished. Do not forget my last wish. 
if i do not save you in spite of yourself it shall be accomplished replied gilbert saluting her for the last time he went forth and the door banged to with that lugubrious sound peculiar to prison doors end of chapter twenty two recording by john van stan savannah georgia